You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, your host, and I've got Dr. David Kirsch, professor at University of Maryland, on the show today. Uh, professor, uh, great to have you on the program. Nice to be with you. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey and what has led you to, uh, you know, studying uh, areas related to the environment and uh, what kind of got you looking in that direction? Sure. Happy to talk a little bit about it. I was actually trained as a historian of technology at uh, Stanford way back in uh, in the mid-90s, and I wrote uh, a book based on my dissertation on the history of the electric car, uh, which at the time seemed like it was a history of failure. And uh, I chose to look at the history of the electric vehicle through a lens of a kind of discipline called industrial ecology, sort of thinking about how industries have their own kind of inputs and outputs and uh, energy flows in and out. And, you know, the electric vehicle always was this kind of very attractive possibility, as, as one of my colleagues uh, who also wrote a book about the history of the electric car called it, you know, the, the car of tomorrow. The electric vehicle is always the car of tomorrow. And in fact, it really had been, I discovered it had been the car of tomorrow since the 1890s. And, you know, that it really, to some, it was quite surprising that electric vehicles had existed, you know, way back at the dawn of the auto age and competed with internal combustion or gasoline cars at that time on the burden of history. And it had this sort of kind of double entendre, the, the burden of history in, in the sense that the electric vehicle lost that first battle and therefore was forever kind of uh, disadvantaged in competition with internal combustion, but also the burden of, of the battery and the kind of the weight of the battery that never, never seemed to quite lift. And so that book came out now about 20 years ago. Surprisingly, it's kind of been this evergreen story where we're here. We are, you know, I've been working on the history of electric cars for almost coming up on 30 years. And the history is still unfolding. Uh, I think I, I got lucky. I'd be be the first to say I got lucky to choose a topic that I was interested in and that has remained relevant over this long period of time. Well, it is a fascinating topic. And uh, yeah, I was kind of surprised to learn a few years back uh, when I saw pictures of these old electric cars back from the 1890s and how uh, that was really a thing. And it wasn't something that was kind of common knowledge i don't think as a kid growing up that hey we had lots of electric vehicle options back in the 1890s early uh, 20th century and that uh for whatever reason or confluence of reasons we kind of shifted in another direction i'd probably say the oil industry had probably a big part in it but as you said the battery technology probably was uh, a, a limiting factor as well um, 
you know, given all that, um, well, let's let's start start with the history question because that's uh, you're a historian. Um, why is it that the electric car lost out to the internal combustion energy engine uh, back in the early 20th century? Was it big oil or was it just a technology limitation related to the battery? That's a great it's a great question. And uh, it's a question I've been really trying to answer for a long time. And the best answer I can come up with, I can give you sort of three reasons why the electric vehicle lost. So the, the first reason is that actually consumers preferred internal combustion. And by this, I mean, the not that people, there weren't people who liked electric vehicles, but the people who mattered, the, the deciders, if you will, um, tended to be wealthy white men and they wanted a gasoline powered car because it was more manly more exciting more uh, you know the roar of the engine the uh, as as one of my colleagues described it it was more of an adventure machine the electric vehicle was actually kind of even in 1900 was kind of docile and a, a little more kind of attractive. It was, it was like a, a phone booth on wheels. You know, it was great. They called it the electric opera car. So, you know, women might use it to go out to the opera in their, you know, crinoline skirts and whatnot, but it wasn't, it wasn't very, it didn't make that your, didn't get your kind of juices going. So I think that was one reason is that, you know, the people who mattered preferred internal combustion were excited by it. And, you know, I think that has some ramifications if you think about the Tesla Roadster and that kind of rebirth of interest in the electric vehicle. That was kind of a sexy car that that uh, Elon Musk and and the Tesla guys put together. That yeah, really kind of got people going. So I'd say that's issue one is consumer preferences. Issue two is what I would call technological expectations. So it's not really the battery per se, but, you know, if you were to ask experts in 1900 which technology is going to kind of get better faster i think people would have said uh, the battery the electric vehicle the electric systems kind of primed to go sort of off the rails you know we'd had electric light and then electric traction um, transportation in cities that sort of streetcars Everyone figured, oh, the next decade, it's just going to be electricity off the rails. Here it comes. Um, and, and internal combustion was this kind of weird, exotic technology that people thought, well, maybe, but that's like decades away. And I think the expectations actually reversed. So what happened is the, the kind of the battery stagnated, not completely, it got better, but not nearly as quickly as internal combustion. So that internal combustion, all of a sudden, the, like power to weight ratio just like took off. You got all these, you know, multi-cylinder engines, things just like electric, uh, 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 the internal combustion technology just really got better super fast and kind of, um, so expectations were, were not met in that sense. And the IC, you know, internal combustion got better faster. And then the third factor that I like to talk about is, and this does connect to the, your question about the oil industry, is about infrastructure. So really, 
if if you if the thing you wanted to do was go from point A to point B, city to city, things like that, roads were pretty crappy, and electricity was non-existent in rural settings. So the only place, only fuel you could acquire was was gasoline, and you couldn't get it. wasn't like pumped from you know a fuel station. You'd go to the general store where they sold it for home. Uh, cooking and they would you'd run it through cheesecloth to filter it and but at least you could get gasoline in most towns and 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 sort of you know down down to pretty small hamlets you could you, if there was a general store you could generally find gasoline so that the availability the infrastructure really favored uh the in, internal combustion yeah, it's fascinating. I was wondering if uh, there was some push by the oil companies when they saw this potential huge use of oil products, whether they uh, made a substantial push in that direction or whether this was kind of niche and they didn't really see this as uh, the big boon that it ended up being for them. I think, you know, the 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 history of the oil industry is is fascinating in this regard it took them a while to sort of get confident that there was sufficient supply to meet an emerging demand so really you know there's the the famous discovery of uh, of oil in texas in 1901 the spindle top um there's uh the kind of consolidation of the oil industry under the a Rockefeller interest. So it, it was, uh, I think the oil industry was so, still sort of trying to get it, get itself sorted out at that time. Um, I don't think they had a lot of political power. They, they really were, were still uh, kind of coming into their own in some ways. Uh, one of the interesting footnotes is that the, uh, the rubber industry was really transformed by the rise of the automobile because up before you know the mid say i don't know 1905 something like that you know rubber was just this uh, kind of niche product you'd use for like pencils and erasers and things like that and all of a sudden they had to really scale production so rubber was completely uh kind of caught blindside by the rise of of internal combustion Oh, it's a fascinating a set of uh, economic history issues that are intertwined in the story of the electric car and the internal combustion engine. You're listening to A Climate Change. Uh, we've got Professor David Kirsch on the program from the University of Maryland, uh, who's a historian in this area. We'll be back in just one minute. And we'll talk about what the future looks like for the electric car industry. You're listening to a climate change. Uh, this is Matt Matter, and your host. I've got Professor David Kirsch, at the University of Maryland, on the program. And uh, Professor, you know, we were talking offline about, uh, you know, what happened next with the EVs, 
And uh, maybe you could talk us through that, you know, kind of uh, it seemed as though for about 60 plus years after the turn of the 20th century, there really wasn't much of an EV market at all by 1960. And then uh, maybe things started to happen. uh, And why did they start to happen? and, And why did it take that long to kind of have this renaissance? Sure. I think one of the things you have to kind of tip your hat to the internal combustion industry is that it internal combustion was magic. It really worked. And that industry was able to scale in ways that were completely uh, unprecedented. Uh, you know, it, it's not a, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say the 20th century really was defined in many ways by the rise of internal combustion, you know, the hundreds of millions of, of, of internal combustion engines and vehicles and uh, the, the entire network of, of highways and infrastructure and distribution and uh, global uh, extraction and processing. I mean, you know, this it, it's a huge accomplishment. And obviously, we're now dealing with the consequences of our sort of over-reliance on that system in some very you know, and that's generated some, some real problems. But I think, you know, it really wasn't until the 1960s that we started to encounter the limits to growth of that system. And and I think those came in a couple different forms. The most kind of visible and 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 first was smog. So you know, you had these the the, the kind of the four galaxy of of the early 1960s was spewing out so much uncombusted uh, hydrocarbon in its exhaust. You literally, uh, you know, you see those pictures from Los Angeles in the 1960s where you could, you know, barely see, um, you know, the mountains. And so I think that that kind of environmental costs, it took a while for internal, for the environmental costs of internal combustion to be visible, to kind of catch up to us. But eventually they did. Um, And and so that kind of generated interest in alternatives. And then I think that the energy shocks of of the early 70s, as gas prices started skyrocketing and there was the Arab oil embargo and the whole idea of kind of energy independence, that kind of was a, a second layer on top of that. And then I think the third issue was around economic growth and the challenge of overseas vehicle producers. So there's there was this hope, uh, in, and there was legislation drafted in the mid-1970s around trying to generate a domestic electric vehicle industry. The idea that you know Ford and GM uh, um, and Chrysler should, you know, kind of could somehow regain their luster by um, and, and generate jobs, domestic jobs, by producing electric vehicles. So that that sort of you know environment, energy independence, and economic uh, growth uh, kind of came together finally um, in the mid nineteen seventies, and there was a lot of interest in electric vehicles, but it it didn't really kind of catch on. Uh, so that this is again the sort of false rebirth. You know, there was this kind of false start, a series of false starts, really, from about the late 1960s until uh, the 1990s. 
Now, was uh, President Reagan in part uh, responsible to kind of he 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 kind of decommissioned, I guess, some of the alternative energy research and development and dollars that were going into the Department of Energy around the Carter administration, which uh, Carter had been more of a proponent of of alternative energy. And uh, and then Reagan kind of pulled the plug on all of that. Right. Yeah, there. it certainly was the case that uh, electric vehicle policy or sort of alternative energy policy got caught up in in the politics of of the day. Uh, but it, you know, the the sort of dirty little secret from my perspective is that in the late seventies, that that technology wasn't really ready to go. It's it's kind of convenient to blame Reagan, and I think you know certainly his, um, you know, he his re, uh, uh, administration came in with an agenda that was very much opposed to those kinds of strategic investments in technology. Uh, industrial policy, but I, d- I don't think that um, the rest. It's not like oh, in the absence of Reagan, we we'd have all been driving electric vehicles twenty years earlier or thirty years earlier. I don't think that. I, I still don't think that the industry was really ready at that point to make those do you, changes. Do you think that uh, the investments in those things like solar uh, at that point in time would have? Uh, catapulted us further, faster, uh, or was it just a requirement that we kind of take this slower path because technology uh, wouldn't have, we couldn't have pushed it much faster? Yeah, I think we could have pushed a little faster. Uh, And I do think, you know, for sure, the basic science, we needed a lot of of learning still, you know, the, the, I mean, you look at the cost curves on solar and you just see how they've come down or, you know, the, if large scale efficient wind and all, all these other kind of alternative energies, uh, um, pathways have really matured in the last, uh, uh, 40 years. But I think one thing, and this may be a little bit idiosyncratic to my view is you know, and maybe this is also partly from studying, uh, being a, a business school professor and looking at organizations and 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 how firms manage themselves. But you know, I think the hybrid path was available. So there were some early folks in the mid 1970s talking about, oh well, we could use hybrid technology that's going to kind of bridge establish that kind of crosswalk, the path to electrification. And nobody wanted to talk about hybrids. The yeah. electric vehicle folks were sort of these deep green purists for whom internal combustion was infernal combustion. They wanted to have nothing to do with it. And the industry folks were sort of like, we make great internal combustion cars. Why would we muck them up with an electric electric system that's just creating more complexity and 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 that kind of a little bit outside our, our our kind of bailiwick, you know. The, so the I, I uh, kind of characterized that early hybrid as like an ugly duckling, you know. Nobody wanted that ugly duckling, but I think that ugly duckling could have taken us in some very interesting directions, 
and might have actually been the middle road, if you will, that that could have gotten us through the 80s and 90s, gotten us maybe to electrification a little faster. Yeah, that uh, that's a good point. And I think from a public policy standpoint, uh, states like California that have that have set now mandates for having uh, kind of no more sales of in, internal combustion engine powered cars, uh, if they had started a bit earlier, even with modest targets, uh, say in the 70s or 80s, might have gotten us kind of on that path sooner. And we've gotten uh, and 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 this probably the feds having higher CAFA standards for higher mileage uh, might have helped as well uh, to to jumpstart that industry. And, and in that way, I think government can play a, a, a very useful role of setting some targets and letting industry figure out how they're going to get there. Right. And well, and I think the, uh, um, you know, the uh, zero emission vehicle mandate from uh, from California played a huge part in ultimately restarting the electric vehicle industry. But that, you know, they had to then def define what was a zero emission vehicle. And it actually took some time. And there were these credits, you know, this kind of credit trading system, a credit trading system, which, by the way, ended up sort of saving Tesla's bacon uh, at several points in the 2010s where they were selling credits to to other manufacturers. So, you know, it it took time I think for the regulatory system to figure out how to make it how how to encourage change, if you will. You know, most regulatory systems aren't really designed to do that. They're just designed to kind of take what is and and kind of manage it, not shape it. And so I think those like uh you know the for instance the the hybrids and plug-in hybrids initially didn't count under the zero emission vehicle mandate they were sort of um outside of the scope of that of that plan and then they had the regulators had to kind of update their scheme to say oh okay no this these are actually good now we're going to give you some credits for those or you know if it's got a you know, a slightly more advanced battery, you get more credits and sort of figuring out that little two-step turned out to be quite a, a complicated process. Well, you're listening to a climate change. I've got uh, Professor David Kirch on the program, University of Maryland, uh, School of Business historian, as well as a specialist in management uh, studies. Uh, we'll be right back in just one minute to talk to him about uh, what the future looks like for the electric car industry. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, your host. I've got Professor David Kirsch on the program today, professor at the University of Maryland. Um, doctor, um, I had a question for you in terms of from 1990 going forward, um, what kind of mistakes were made from maybe a policy point of view as well as from uh, the industry point of view in terms of developing electric cars and maybe what are maybe lessons we can learn going forward to, to do a better job at, at uh, 
from a public policy standpoint, and maybe if you were giving coaching to the car manufacturers, what what do you think you'd tell them as far as um, focusing their energy and attention on? Well, I think, you know, uh, here we are. And I think, you know, in 2023, I'll just say, as an aside, I used to get a call, you know, like every December for years, I would get a, get calls from from reporters and they would say, Professor Kirsch, you wrote a book about the history of the electric car. Tell us, is this is is, you know, next year is 2010, the year of the electric that the electric vehicle goes mainstream, you know, and I I would dutifully r- give the story, the history of the electric vehicle and kind of how we got to where we were and. You know, I'd say, you know, I, I'm going to, uh, you know, historians don't make predictions. I'm just going to tell you how we got here and what might happen. And, you know, for year after year after year, I think people were waiting for that real kind of breakthrough to happen. And and I think what's happened now, you know, no one called me and asked at the end of 2022, would 2023 be the year of the electric vehicle? Because it's happened. It's here. You know, I think we really do now finally see electric vehicles from a number of different manufacturers, lots of different kind of product offerings, you know, different uh, little EV buzz from from Volkswagen or, um, you know, an electric pickup truck from the F-150 or, you know, the Rivian or, you know, so the incumbents and new entrants and the, the Germans and the Chinese and kind of everybody's now playing ball. So I think that's that's the good news that everyone is kind of now taking the electric vehicle opportunity more or less seriously. And I think, you know, consumers are are getting on board too, albeit with the support of some subsidies and needing a little handholding along the way. Um, but but I think, you know, that uh, uh, I, I've been telling my uh, my students if you want to see the you know there's a this famous um, uh, venture incubator uh, Y Combinator I, I'm you guys probably have heard of it you know they started Dropbox and Airbnb and all these other you know kind of uh, accelerated all these uh, you know super successful startups and Paul Graham the founder of Y Combinator has a saying, move to the future and build something interesting you see there. So, you know, when I tell my my students, if you want to understand the future of the electric vehicle, you have to go to Norway. Because the electric vehicle market share in Norway in 2022 was 80%. So 80% of all new vehicles sold in Norway were all electrics. So if you want to see kind of what a, a transportation system looks like that's, you know, almost fully electrified, um, take a look at what's happening there. How are they hooking up people who live in uh, apartment buildings? How are they organizing charging clubs? How are they uh, or, uh, using, uh, reusing batteries that are coming out of, of old vehicles? So, you know, I think there's a whole set of of changes that, and you know, by contrast, you know, by, by comparison, rather, I think in the U.S. we were maybe 
six or eight percent, something like that, which was a huge advance in 2022 over where we were in 21 or 20 or 19, et cetera. But we're, we still have such a long way to go uh, until we really start seeing what this electrified system looks like, what the challenges are. Oh, well, how do you hook up a, here in the U.S., the challenge is, can I get one charger into my into my garage? Well, in Norway, um, you know, if, it, if a family has two cars, chances are both of them are electrics. And so they actually need to put two chargers in. Well, that's a different, you know, do you, again, double the capacity of the circuits or do you um, have put two chargers and have them share one circuit and like all these kind of practical uh, kind of issues around uh, kind of uh, um, uh, uh, accommodating our our lives to this different kind of technological system are, are are kind of taking place there in that where the future is in Norway. And so and now Norway has all sorts of other unique features. It's they're super rich and um, you know all kinds of you know they've got a lot and a lot of the money came from North Sea oil. But uh, anyway, we can put that aside. Uh, I think those are the kinds of questions, you know, it, it may be, for instance, you know, in the Bay Area for it, uh, that's where the electric future really kind of takes shape in the U.S., where, you know, you've got all the kind of forward-looking folks and a lot of um, discretionary income and people kind of, you know, maybe we get to 20% electric vehicles in, in, in you know, Santa Clara County or, or the Bay Area or something, it, or, you know, I don't know, maybe it's Orlando, or I don't know exactly where that's going to happen, or Phoenix. But, you know, so I think that's what we have to think about now is like, where are these, where is the future going to kind of take hold in the US? And then how are we going to kind of uh, organize both the, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of policy environment for it, but also get the uh, make sure that people are happy with it. We don't want unhappy people, uh, you know, we don't want to force people to buy technology they don't want. Well, I guess the question is how much uh, value are we getting decarbonizing from going to electric? And has this been calculated? Have you been a part of that? Have you studied it? Um, what is what is the net net benefit from doing this? Because obviously uh, building new cars has a, even if they're electric, has a carbon component to it and generating electricity, uh, even from windmills and solar have a carbon component to it because uh, creating solar cells and, and windmills takes, uh, you know, energy and carbon to produce them, right? Sure. No. So I think this is, you know, I think I started uh, talking initially about this idea of industrial ecology, thinking about sort of how our uh, industrial systems metabolize uh, materials and energy. And I think, you know, that's really the perspective we need to bring to our uh, thinking about transportation. Now, uh, the electric vehicle has a big advantage over internal combustion because the that internal combustion, the efficiency of a typical internal combustion engine is quite low. So, you know, it's maybe 20, mid-20s in terms of kind of theoretical energy efficiency. So um, for an electric vehicle, which can you know, take energy in and, and 
a bat typical battery can operate at uh, high, you know mid ninety percent efficiency input and output. So you, there's a lot of um, it, it can be much more efficient, but we do still have to think about well, what does it cost to mine those crazy you know rare earth minerals in in Central Africa, and what does it cost to bring them uh, across around the world, and um, how much energy do we spend in smelting the ore and and uh, building these these batteries? So if we don't design our system so that we you know both reuse and recycle these these uh, materials, we're going to end up uh, doing we could be doing more harm than good. Uh, so these are these are really important questions to keep in mind. And then I also think, you know, some of these huge electric pickup trucks, the, you know, GM has that Hummer. I don't know if people have seen that. The one That's the one that like crab walks with LeBron James and the ad. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a little goofy. Um, it's huge. And it's got a this gigantic battery that's, you know, four or five times the size of my little like city car in my that's parked in my garage that my little city car will only go a hundred miles on a charge, but that's all I need. And it, it's kind of, you know, it, it works. I just think the electric proposition of a, like a four ton pickup truck, it feels a little crazy to me. I was a little, I was actually happier thinking about hybridizing those. So the, like a plug-in hybrid pickup truck that might, only have a 12 or 15 or 20 mile range, you might get a lot of environmental benefit from that without having to put, you know, uh, a, a gigantic battery pack in there that's, you know, comes with all these other environmental externalities. So I think these are, the, again, these are the kind of questions we're going to have to get to. Um, I'm, I'm sort of hopeful that part of this conversation helps us um, step away from our our love of trucks and the pickups and all that stuff. But, you know, again, we we can't force people to buy vehicles they don't want. Um, not everyone likes that little electric vehicle that, you know, my little city car that makes me happy. It's not going to make everybody else happy. You're listening to A Climate Change. Professor David Kirsch on the program from the University of Maryland. We'll be back in just one minute. We'll talk about what the future looks like for the electric car industry. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, and I've got David Kirsch, professor at University of Maryland, on the program. And, Professor, we were just talking before uh, about kind of – electric pickup trucks in general. And my thought there is, wouldn't it be wise to adjust our tax policy to give maybe less of a credit to uh, doing an electric pickup truck than maybe a smaller vehicle that is truly using less energy? Because at the end of the day, we want to be using less energy and less materials because that all affects the carbon footprint and merely getting a, uh, a big electric truck and driving it around solo without even using it for truck-like purposes, just as a transportation car, is not particularly energy efficient. I mean, it might be slightly more energy 
efficient than an internal combustion big truck, but certainly not optimal from a let's save energy standpoint, right? Sure. No, it's a really good point. And I think figuring out, you know, Americans have a long standing love of light trucks, you know, or the sport utility vehicles that got categorized as trucks and uh, were part of a different, you know, kind of regulatory scheme that allowed the that excluded some of the foreign manufacturers from competing in those segments. You know, so there's there, there's all sorts of um, kind of quirks to the American uh, kind of light duty vehicle market. And the more we can figure out how to right price these different um, vehicles and generate incentives that do encourage the sorts of behaviors we we want to see more of the better but we don't have a great track record in in that regard you know the light trucks and sport utility vehicles are over half the the market and have been now for uh, over a decade or more so i think you know we may just have to deal with people's preferences as they are and try and figure out well what can we do and you know one one defense of those big vehicles, and I don't want to be too kind of much, you know, too apologetic for them, but you know, any internal combustion engine is cleanest the day it rolls off the, um, you know, the, the day you drive it off the dealer's lot, right? It gets it only gets dirtier. By contrast. Any electric vehicle can get cleaner, is as clean as the grid that fuels it. So in that sense, if if we put elect more electric vehicles out into the world and continue to invest in a smart grid and continue to invest in um, greener supply, then over time, it, in principle, that vehicle can get cleaner, um, whereas that internal combustion vehicle only gets dirtier. So maybe that's some kind of consolation that at least if we put a bunch of these big, you know, kind of electric pickup trucks out there, maybe over time that then gives us the challenge of like kind of cleaning the grid that powers them. And then maybe it's at least not as bad. Right. That's kind of the silver lining or potential. Um, What are your thoughts about hydrogen cars? I, this, I'm on my second hydrogen car and uh, you know, what are your thoughts there? I think it's the long term for sure. We're you know we're heading toward a hydrogen economy. The the process of decarbonization has been going on for millennia. You know we used to burn wood and you know then we went to coal and then oil and then finally natural gas. So we keep you know kind of reducing the number of carbon atoms to to hydrogen atoms and you know H two is zero carbon. So I think it, it, it's the natural endpoint uh, for our energy system. And uh, um, I think hydrogen and electricity kind of go hand in hand in the sense that we can use electricity to generate hydrogen. Um, and hydrogen can be a store, a great ener- store of energy for places we can't get 
uh, electricity to or where it doesn't make sense to have um, electricity stored. So uh, I'm a big hydrogen fan. I think my only question would be around timing. Like, is it do we go straight to hydrogen like some people want? Or is the electrification the kind of crosswalk to that hydrogen future? And I'm open to, I don't have a strong view which way it should be. I think we want to support both. And so I worry sometimes that when the hydrogen people are attacking the elect, you know, the lithium ion battery people and the battery people are attacking the hydrogen people, I sort of, I, I just step back from that because my view is both are preferable to kind of wallowing in more internal combustion kind of stuff. I guess I look at and think uh, we should be laying uh, more of the infrastructure for a hydrogen economy because obviously that's a long-term play and putting down whatever those things are that are necessary, whether it's pipelines or things of that nature and investing as much as we can in in uh, creating cheap electricity, cheap, clean electricity, which would uh, fuel kind of the hydrogen economy, but also obviously, as you said, it's in parallel to probably having better battery systems and better electric cars too. So it, it, it's probably true that in the short term, the electric battery powered cars are more doable. Um, but I, I guess I I'm concerned that if the further we go down that path, the harder it will be to switch to hydrogen, just like there was this huge barrier to get us to switch to electric. What do you think? Well, I think it's a reasonable concern. And I think it's we're at a state now where I think, you know, if I go back to my kind of analogy of, move to the future and build something interesting there, you know, let's see how Norway handles this, right? Like, let's see how some of these more advanced, more electrified um, contexts start thinking about that transition to hydrogen or, you know, what are the, where might hydrogen work in, uh, you know, if we think about, oh, well, where is the electric, electrification really going to take hold first? say in the US is that in California or you know as we we're talking about different regions then maybe within that then we say oh well here's a a hydrogen kind of hot spot where we could really um start building out that infrastructure because uh, you know I think there, you probably don't have uh quite as many fueling stations um as there are points to plug in an electric car or uh you know, yeah, that's get, get, that is get that, gasoline. That's absolutely true. Uh, that hydro, there are limited stations, but it's enough to get around. I can I can drive from here to San Francisco, uh, though you have to hit one station and you hope that it has uh, hydrogen when you get there. Uh, but um, I was I was thinking about going to the future. You look at Denmark and they are producing a tremendous amount of wind energy. Uh, essentially 100% of their grid is powered by wind energy and on uh, on many days. And uh, then they're thinking, because they're building so much more capacity, that they will be 
uh, creating a lot of green hydrogen with all this wind energy, which they will then pump to Germany and will become kind of the new Saudi Arabia of of hydrogen. Uh, we could do the same in the U.S. because there are a lot of the great plain states that are having uh you know texas i think is up to 40 percent of their energy is coming from wind so so couldn't we be uh doing that same thing of kind of creating a lot of good green um hydrogen energy sure i, I think that's that's definitely on the horizon and i think the question is sort of the sequence you know do we go right there or do we kind of need to, is there some threshold of electrification that we need to get to first so that we'll we'll have a, a robust market for you know sort of alternatives and and i think you know that that there's some i think reasonable people can disagree about whether we go sort of internal combustion straight to hydrogen or electrify and then have hydrogen kind of be part of the electrified transportation system um, I, th I think, you know, I, I don't have a strong view on that. I, I do think, you know, the uh, the car industry has sort of gone all in on lithium ion at this point. So there, you know, if you everybody's just building to lithium ion and and maybe except the Japanese because they were sort of very slow to come to. To electric uh, electric vehicles, but almost everybody else is just all in on lithium ion, and that may be in red. That may turn out to have been a kind of overcommitment that these you know billions and billions of dollars that are being thrown at lithium ion battery production may turn out we may end up with overcapacity. Well, it's a it's a fascinating set of challenges, and our um, you know speed of history is continuing to accelerate. Uh, it's been great having you on the program. Uh, look forward to talking with you more. Lots of other questions remain unanswered. We were going to talk about Tesla and its market cap being equivalent to all other car companies, uh, but we may have to save that for another day. Uh, you've been listening to A Climate Change. I've got uh, Professor David Kirsch on the program. Thank you again for being on the show and um, love to talk to you again going forward. Thanks, Matt. A real pleasure. 